Please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3. Last week, as we started this new section of the book of Philippians, we spoke extensively about verse 1's command from Paul to rejoice in the Lord. I mentioned to you last week that uh, the Greek word kara, even from which we get charis, the word for grace, kara is joy, and the word for rejoice is Cairo, like Cairo, Egypt, which I think struggles with rejoicing because, of course, vast Troves of people who don't know the Lord don't know about this rejoicing in Him, having joy in the Lord. And Paul in Philippians 3.1 says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, in the sphere of the Lord, in the sphere of His doings, in the sphere of His love and His grace, and even in His own joy. Paul says, to write the same things to you is no trouble for me and is safe for you. Now, as I mentioned to you last time when we stopped there at verse 1, this concept of rejoicing in the Lord is peppered throughout the book of Philippians. I mentioned to you, I think, that 14 times either joy or rejoicing is mentioned, and we Last time went over 10 principles of joy and rejoicing. And I did that because I wanted to set you up. Because as we go through verses 2 and following of Philippians 3, it's very somber, very sobering. And so we need to be set up with joy and rejoicing. Because when we hit chapter 3, verse 2, as though it comes out of the blue like a lightning bolt, Paul utters some words that may be the strongest ever from his pen. Possibly with Galatians 1 and Philippians 3, 2, and 3, Paul utters Righteous anger under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And what does he say? Well, right after saying that we are to rejoice in the Lord as Christians, he says that there is a reason to write such a thing because it's safe for you. The end of verse 1. Now, in what sense is it safe? For Paul to write, rejoice in the Lord. What kind of safeguard is this? What what measure of safety or protection could this possibly be? Well, it's because of what he's about to say. Verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Watch out for or look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I'd say that that's quite different than rejoice in the Lord, wouldn't you? This is 
This is an amazing turnabout. Because yes, of course, Paul talks a lot about joy and rejoicing throughout this entire epistle. I told you last time that this epistle is known by many as the epistle of joy. And almost, as it were, out of the blue, he's talking about rejoicing in the Lord, and it's no trouble for me to write such a thing, and it's safe for you for me to do so. And then he says, I want to warn you. This is a very serious warning. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. What kind of warning is this? Who's he talking about? What what is he saying when he just immediately writes something so ominous, so foreboding? Well, there was in Philippi, as there was also in the Galatian region of churches, and in fact, throughout Asia Minor, in many places, to say nothing of Rome and other areas, there were those who were posing as Christians. But they weren't really Christians. They were posing as Christians because they were adding something to the blessed, glorious gospel of Jesus Christ and Him alone for our salvation. And these false Christians are the ones to whom Paul is warning us. And then he goes on in verse 3 to say, For we, referring to himself and the genuine Christians at Philippi, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. What's he referring to? And, and to what two groups is he mentioning when he writes? Well, at least for the beginning of our message this morning, let's call these in two outline points the false and the true. That's easy enough, isn't it? The false and the true. Here's his warning. The warning is that there are people who either are already in your midst or who are coming into your midst, for whom I should warn you very solemnly, very soberly, because they want to spy out the true gospel and deceive you with a false gospel. And that's why he says three times, look out, look out, look out. That Word look is our Greek word for see, blepo, to see, to watch out for, to be warned about. And frankly, he says the same thing to the Galatians. Turn over to Galatians chapter 1. I reference this as a similar text to what Paul is dealing with in Philippians chapter 3. And of course, in chapter 1, he's talking about a false gospel again. Galatians 1.6, I'm astonished, referring to the Galatian 
believers, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, listen to this statement, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be damned. Let him be consigned to judgment in hell forever. That's his wording. That's that's sobering, isn't it? Under their inspiration, as I said, of the Holy Spirit, this is righteous anger coming out from Paul. As we have said before, verse 9, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. And he says it again. For, verse 10, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. What he's saying in verse 10 is, I'm telling you the truth, I'm not lying, and I'm warning you about this false gospel of those who've come in to try to spy out your liberty in Christ, and I'm telling you, if I weren't such a one to warn you of this, I'd be a man-pleaser. But I'm not a man-pleaser, I'm a God-pleaser. And I'm going to tell you about this false gospel gospel. And he even goes so far, look at chapter 5, by using that lookout word again. It's translated differently here, watch out, but he says in Galatians 5.15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out, blepo, look out, that you are not consumed by one another. So this warning, this sobriety, This solemn call is a call to make sure you know and understand and are living out the true gospel. You say, well, I can understand that because Paul's an apostle. There's a lot of demonic activity going on. There are a lot of confused people in the first century. The gospel is being spread. It's new. It's coming out of some of these challenges from... Some Judaizers, we'll talk about them in a moment. Uh, There's a lot of confusion. Christianity is somewhat new. Of course, it's got to lay the groundwork for the true gospel to be pervasive. There's got to be a need to safeguard it and protect it, and all of those things are true. But do you think that there's really anything different from the first century to the 21st? No, because Satan is alive and well on planet Earth, and he continues to do what he does, and that is to distort the true gospel. And in our churches today, across America, let alone the world, there are churches today filled with people who are hearing a false gospel. It's very real. A tremendous threat. Paul even says in in Colossians Chapter 2, verse 8, and again with this sort of watch out phrase, he says, you got to really, really watch out. He says in Colossians 2, 8, see to it 
Watch out, look out, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world. This is demonic activity, folks, and not according to Christ. Watch out, look out, beware, be warned. So who, who are we to be warned about? This is not just something that happened in the Galatian region or in Philippi or somewhere else. This is happening today. This is happening in our midst. This is happening in this valley. This is happening in this county, this state, this nation. It's happening in the world. Satan continues to dilute the gospel and to distort the gospel and to misrepresent the true gospel. And he has his minions, both angelic and human for whom he will not stop forever until he is stopped by God himself purporting a different gospel. And so, Paul's got a challenge in Philippi. And he tells us. tells us exactly who they are. And he tells us about one group of people, and he describes them in three ways. So he's talking about one group of people, and he describes them in three ways. Look at the first one in the first part of verse 2. And uh, I would call these the false, and I would go further to say these are three sides of the one kind of false teacher that Paul is attempting to deal with, and we could call this the anatomy or an anatomy of the false teacher. These are characteristics of every false teacher, He's particularly talking about one kind of false teaching, but he gives, as it were, a paradigm or an anatomy of those who are generally purporting false gospels. And the first thing he says, the first one we ought to look out for, and the first part of verse 2 is, look out for the dogs. Now that seems incredibly unkind, doesn't it? I mean, and there are people who would say, Paul... Are you using some level of hyperbole? Are you sensationalistically talking uh, out of your head? Uh, You're being unpleasant. You're being unkind. Uh, This is the opposite of what loving Christianity is all about. Well, and Paul's response, I suppose, would be something like this. If you thought that there was a bottle, and in that bottle was strychnine, a deadly disease that if drunk... You would die instantly, and someone put on such a bottle, essence of peppermint. And they drank it unawares. And they met their sudden doom. Would you say it would be a fair thing to say, don't drink the potion of dogs? Yes, of course. Watch out for the dogs. Tus kunas. The dogs. I'm going to call it so that you can see this as memorable, the mangy dogs. The mangy dogs. And I do that and the other two sides of this one instance of false teaching are also going to start with an M. And I do that because actually Paul himself does a little bit of a wordplay here with the Greek letter kappa, the K, And each one of these three characteristics of the one false teacher starts with a kappa, Greek kappa. And I'm going to call this first one the mangy dog. You know why I do? Because it talks about false teachers in 2 Peter 2.22 and it says this, 
using a proverb from Proverbs 26, 11, what the true proverb says has happened to them, that is false teachers, the dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, the pig, after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. Now that's fairly picturesque, isn't it? Scripture is calling false teachers pigs and dogs. And taken from, as I said, Proverbs 26, 11, like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. A fool, according to the book of Proverbs, is an unbeliever. The wise man in the book of Proverbs is a believer. The wise and the foolish. The true and the false. We would say Christians and non-Christians. And we would also say true teachers and false teachers. And the false teacher is one who is likened to a mangy dog. That's strong language. But it is extremely appropriate. Because it is those who infect the true gospel with their disease. And they end up infecting everyone who chooses to listen to them in their false gospel, just like a mangy dog who infects the gospel with mange onto others. You say, well, I'm ready for the names. Just take your pick. If someone is purporting to you a true gospel, and it isn't the gospel of God's saving grace, plus or minus nothing, it's a false gospel. It's grace, plus or minus nothing else. It's grace and grace alone. That's why the reformers of 500 years ago, were so intent on battling those who were saying that it was grace plus works. And it isn't grace plus works. There's nothing you or I could do. There's no work that we could perform. There's nothing that we could do to contribute to our salvation. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to the authority of the Bible alone, for the glory of God alone. See, this is what the gospel is. And when someone comes along and they misrepresent such a gospel, and in this case, these dogs do... Paul's got to call them on it, and he's got to warn the Philippians, and he says something like this, I want you to rejoice in the Lord, I want you to have joy in the Lord, and it's a safeguard for me to tell you that you're safely in Christ, because there are going to be those who come among you, and possibly they're already here, who will try to spy out such joy in Christ, and they want to destroy your soul. So it's a safeguard for me to tell you to rejoice in the true Lord, the true Lord who speaks the true gospel, who wants you not to be absolutely turned on your head with a false gospel. Those are the dogs. Which, by the way, is so ironic because the Jews of Paul's day, the Jews generally, they called their Gentile counterparts dogs. There was great hostility between Jews and Gentiles in the first century. And, and, and you've got the Jews calling the Gentiles, maybe even like these Philippians here, dogs. And Paul turns around and calls these false teachers because they are Jewish. Let you in on a little bit of the interpretation of who these are. Because they're Jewish. And he turns around ironically and says, no, you're the dogs. 
You're the dogs. And so, we're talking about Jewish false teachers here. They're dogs. And then he says, secondly, look at the middle part of verse 2. Look out for, watch out for, beware of the evil doers. So here you have the dogs. And I suppose, by the way, that when he calls them the dogs, he's referring to their motives. Their motives. They know what they're doing. Even if they would be convinced of such a thing, they know that they're opposing Paul. They know they're opposing the Philippians. They know they're opposing Christianity in general, even though they might even purport themselves to be Jewish Christians. But they're not. And their motives are askew, and that's why he calls them dogs. And secondly, he says, look out for the evil doers. And I take from this, it's not just their motives, it's their commitment. It's their commitment to what they believe. It's their commitment to trying to subvert Paul's gospel so that they, the Philippians, would receive their gospel. Kakus ergatas. I told you that letter K, that kappa. So they are the kunas, the dogs, and now they are the kakus, the evil ones. And ergatas is from which we derive the English word energy, and so that's why it's translated evil workers. Evil energizers. They're committed. They're totally committed to what they're doing. So what do you have to do? You've got to watch out for the mangy dogs who purport false doctrine. And secondly, let's call these folks, these evildoers, this is the second characteristic of them, watch out for the maliciously dedicated. I mean, they're maliciously dedicated. I say maliciously because the adjective that describes them, evil. Evil workers. They're energized, totally energized by their malicious intent. This is serious. They are these who demand that the gospel be understood as they teach it. And they're going to walk right into the Philippian church if they could. Paul's in prison. Now he wants to send Timothy. He's not yet come. He wants to send Epaphroditus. He's not yet come. He he wants to come himself, does Paul, but he's in prison. He's not able to. And can you imagine a pastor's heart when he thinks that there's a possibility that having birthed this church, spiritually speaking, that there are going to be those who are dogs, mangy dogs, who are maliciously dedicated to being purveyors of a false gospel, and Paul's not there to warn the people. So he sends this letter. He tells them, watch out, watch out, watch out. And by the way, even the, the phrase mangy dogs, as tough as that sounds, as, as sort of um, off color as that may be from a spiritual vantage point, I mean, you call, call these people dogs? I mean, it's, that's disrespectful. You ain't seen nothing yet. Turn to Jude. This is, this is what the New Testament does I told you, 2 Peter 2, they called them pigs and they called them dogs. And in Jude, this is incredible. Look at Jude 3 and 4. We say Jude 3 and 4 because there's only one chapter, so we don't have to give a chapter. There's only one. And in Jude 3 and 4, Jude says to those to whom he writes, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you 
to contend for the faith. It's got that article there, the faith. That means the body of revealed knowledge, the truth, uh, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. To contend for the faith, the gospel that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now why does he say, I was, I was going to write to you about our common salvation. In other words, from a very positive vantage point, and now I find it necessary to write to you to contend for such a faith. Why? He says it, verse 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 10, He describes them, but these people blaspheme all that they do not understand and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever." Ouch! Don't don't have that on your resume. (laughs) Verse 16, grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires, they are loudmouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Scoffers, verse 18, those, verse 19, who cause division, worldly people devoid of the Spirit... This is it's incredible. He even says, try to save those who are the unsuspecting at the hands of these false teachers, verse 22, by snatching them out of the fire, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is uh, it's not a pretty picture. And, and by the way, the, the evil workers, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as my fellow worker my fellow energizer. And now he's talking about the utter opposite, evil workers. They're maliciously dedicated in their commitment. They spew their false doctrine upon the unsuspecting, sealing their own doom and those who follow them. You say, well, you know, it's in the book of Jude. Well, that's a book that talks much about false teachers and You've given Galatians 1 as an example. You've given here Philippians 3, a couple of verses. You know, it's in so many other places in our New Testaments as well. Look at 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is amazing. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Look at verse 13. It's virtually this idea of warning against false teachers in every single Bible book of the New Testament Something is said. Verse 13, For such men, 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen. They're not only evil workers, Philippians 3, 2, 
but they are also deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. They're going to get their comeuppance. But for now, they look like you. They talk like you. They act like you, or so it seems. Until they're in. Until it appears that everything is well, things are safe. I've had, through three decades plus, the opportunity at times to actually spy them out myself, to see what they're up to. They come in the fellowship. That's why we have membership opportunities. That's why we have investigation. That's why we have examination. Not just for someone who says, hey, I'd like to teach, but but all of those who need to profess a true gospel. A lot of false sent ones out there. A lot of those who are, who are saying about themselves, hey, we'll be workers in the church. We'll be workers in the church. And you have to find out, are they fellow workers like Epaphroditus or are they evil workers like Paul is warning about here in Philippians 3? So you've got to know who the workmen are, right? In fact, here's what Paul says about true workmen. Look at 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 5. This is what he says about the true workmen. Verse 17, 1 Timothy 5, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, who labor, who work. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer, the worker, deserves his wages. But you've got to examine these too. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. And for those who persist in sin, and there will be some of those, they're false, they, they continue in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest, the rest of the congregation, and undoubtedly the rest of the elders may stand in fear. And then he says, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and the, of, of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. It's pretty serious, isn't it? Look at 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 2.15. You want to know what we're supposed to be like? You want to know what I'm supposed to be like? What the elders are supposed to be like? And what all true teachers are supposed to be like? 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Do your best, Paul says to Timothy, to present yourself to God as one approved. A what? A worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Avoid irreverent babble. For it leads people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus who have swerved from the truth saying that the resurrection has already happened. You see, this is false teaching. They are upsetting the faith of some. We've got to be that approved workman. But I've got to be clear. You better be teaching the truth. Don't be a part of the false Look out for the evil workers. They're maliciously committed. They're maliciously dedicated. And yet they're nothing but a bunch of mangy dogs. Thirdly, he says, latter part of verse 2, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Mutilate the flesh. Ah, now we know exactly who they are. 
I mean, if they're, if they're these mangy dogs, that's their motives. They want to disease other people. And if they're evil workers, that means that they're maliciously dedicated in their commitment to doing so. And now we know about their teaching. They want to mutilate the flesh, it says. So you've got the mangy dogs, that's their motives. You've got the maliciously dedicated, that's their commitment. And now you've got the mutilating dogmatists. They're dogmatic about what they believe. They're going to die for what they believe in their teaching. And what do they teach? Oh, this is, this is a picture of the Judaizing false Christians, the Judaizers. They say it's something like this. In order for you to be a true Christian, you Gentiles in Philippi, you were, you were worshiping these uh, pagan deities, so many of them, that now you've come into Christianity, we just want to come and have a teaching powwow with you. We want to be able to teach you the better way. Paul's incarcerated, his fellow workers are not that yet there, we're coming in, or maybe they're already in, or maybe they're down the street, or maybe they're in the next little house church, and they want to come along, and they want to tell you that it isn't Christ plus or minus nothing that's the true gospel, it's Christ plus circumcision. You say, what in the world does that mean? All right, well, of course we know that the Jews, God had marked them out as His covenant people by the sign of circumcision. All the males had circumcision of the foreflesh so that this foreskin of the flesh, that they, in fact, would be marked out as the people of God. And when the gospel, the true gospel of Jesus Christ had come along that said that circumcision, this was all meted out in Acts 15, when there was, of course, the desire to see Jew and Gentile come together in one body, the body of Christ, that circumcision, which was, in fact, commanded by God in the Old Testament, was not something that would continue. In other words, the gospel of Jesus Christ did not include the necessity, the command to circumcise males, and so that was something that had passed away. The fulfillment of the cross of Jesus Christ means that it is the cross and the cross only, nothing else, including the right, the R-I-T-E, of circumcision. And apparently, these professing, Judaizing Christians wanted to come along and say, oh no, Philippians, no, 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 it's Christ plus circumcision, and Paul even uses another play on words here because he uses that K, that kappa word, katatome, with peritome, circumcision, and he says, you're not really, really interested in true circumcision. What you're really, really interested in is your own brand, and you're not talking about circumcision. He uses the word for incision. You're talking about cutting. You're talking about something for which, as Judaizers, you've got to do it our way. And they demanded that the Gentiles have an incision, a mutilation, which for them is not simply a circumcision, but a work in which they want to do to add to grace. Yeah, yeah, it's grace, but it's grace plus something. And in their case, you've got to do this right, R-I-T-E, our way, And it's got to be grace plus this, circumcision. And that's what you've got to do in order for you to be a true, genuine, bona fide Christian. 
But that's a false gospel. And Paul says, absolutely not. You cannot add works of any kind, including circumcision, to grace. Otherwise, it isn't any longer grace. That's his point. And you know what? That's exactly what was happening in the Galatian region. Turn back over to Galatians chapter 5. This was an insidious error. It was working its way through the churches. And in chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. What kind of slavery? Look, Paul says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. In other words, when God had the Jews circumcised these males on the eighth day to count them among the people of God as the male leaders, this was the people of God, this was the covenant, and that was the initial sign of such a covenant, right? But you had the rest of your life as a young Jewish boy to live out, and you'd have a family, and you would lead them. It wasn't just that you were in with the sign of circumcision as though nothing else mattered and you didn't have to do anything else. No, there was the entire Mosaic law and you had to do that moral, civil, ceremonial. You had to do all of those things and you had to do them perfectly. It wasn't just circumcision. But indeed, some of these were saying, got to be circumcised. And they themselves weren't even keeping the rest of the law. And so he says... Look, if you, if you accept circumcision, you've got to be obligated to keep the whole law. And of course, parenthetically, no one can. Verse 4, you are severed from Christ. Word play there. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. See, they tried to come into the church. And they tried to talk about grace. And it seemed reasonable. It seemed authentic. It seemed powerfully inducive to following a group of false teachers like this. And Paul says, you can't let them do this. For through the Spirit, verse 5, by faith we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, listen to this, verse 6, for in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Paul says you can't do this. You can't accept this. This is a false gospel. Folks, this is the anatomy of the false. They're mangy dogs. They're maliciously dedicated. They're mutilating dogmatists. They say you've got to accept our dogma. And Paul says you've got to watch out. You cannot let for one moment, a false gospel be pervasive in the church. If it does, it's like the little lump of dough, the little lump of leaven that leavens the whole lump. It's like the, the flask of pure water until someone drops a dropper of ink into that water and it stains the whole flask. You can't do it. Now, If you're like me, I'm tired of talking about the false. I want to talk about the true. Okay? And here's the true. 
Here they are. Look at verse 3. What is a true Christian? I mean, this is one of the most beautiful verses in all of the New Testament because Paul meets them on their own terms and he says, look, here are the three shades, the three sides, the three characteristics of the false and I'm going to tell you who they are. They're mangy dogs. They're maliciously dedicated. They are mutilating dogmatists. They, they try to convince you of their false doctrine. But I'm going to tell you what a true Christian is, and I'm going to use even some of their terms, and I'm going to recast it in a way that shows you who and what is a true Christian. And here it is. I want you to check yourself. Here are the true. Look at the first, verse, uh, first part of verse 3. We are the circumcision. We are the circumcision. Now, if you're like me, I read that, and I've heard what Paul's just said about the fatality of adding grace plus circumcision to the gospel. It goes nowhere. It damns you. It's an accursed gospel. And now what's he doing turning around and talking about circumcision and saying, we are the circumcision? I mean, it's like, Paul, get off of that. If circumcision is bad and if it leads to a false gospel because you add it to grace, it's a false gospel, then move away entirely from talking about circumcision. He says, no, I'm going to recast it the way it originally was supposed to be understood. And you know the way that it was originally supposed to be understood? Circumcision, even for Jews, was never about the physical right. It was never about the physical act. It was always about not merely the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart. It was always about that. And you know what Paul is doing? He's turning around and saying, we're the true circumcision of the heart. Here's a memorable way of seeing the three shades of a Christian or three characteristics to describe the true Christian, let's call this first one God-centered free grace. God-centered free grace. Why? Because grace plus or minus nothing is God-centered. It's from God. It's the grace from God. It's the gift of grace from God. It's only by God's grace. It's nothing else but grace. Don't ever listen to anyone. Don't ever follow anyone who says to you that it is grace plus or minus either that grace or you have an admixture of grace plus works. Whether it's circumcision, whether it's you got to attend this church, you got to give this amount of money, you got to pray these many prayers, you got to use these beads when you pray, you got to do this when you pray, you got to do this when you serve. And if you do all of those things, and if you do them regularly enough, then you might be able to get into the kingdom of God. And if you don't, grace is no longer grace. Well, I submit to you that if grace and grace alone, plus or minus nothing, is not the true gospel, then it's no grace at all. It's no gospel at all. Because it is grace alone. It's God-centered free grace. It's the gift of God's grace. It's the gift that God says, 
I'm going to impart to you my grace in spite of anything you could ever do. In fact, it's in spite of anything you've ever done. And that's why it's called grace. Because there's nothing that you, you and I could ever do to perform or work hard enough or do enough things or pray enough prayers or go to church enough or serve enough or be kind enough or be holy enough so that you and I on the outside could say, do I qualify now? Is it enough? No, it's all of grace. It's God-centered, free grace. That's what it means when it says we are the circumcision. And there are boatloads of passages that actually say that very thing in the Old Testament. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10. You go all the way back to the Pentateuch. And you're in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And this was the plan all along. It was never to prop up circumcision as though when a Jewish male child at eight days of old and onward for the rest of his life was in the covenant. He was in the kingdom just because of his physical circumcision. It was not that. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16. Moses says to those stiff-necked Jews, circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart. And be no longer stubborn. It's a heart religion, isn't it? It's not just the stuff you do on the outside. It's not just the stuff that changes your anatomy. It's supposed to be the change of the heart. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. This is always the plan, my friends. It's always about the circumcision of the heart. Chapter 30, verse 6. And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. It's always about the heart. That's that's from the Pentateuch. What about the prophets? Look over at Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 4. This is the prophet Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, because he saw so often the stubbornness of his people. And in Jeremiah chapter 4, verse 4, God, through Jeremiah the prophet, says, Jeremiah 4.4, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire and burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. It's always about that. It's always about the circumcision of the heart. It always has and it always will. In chapter 9 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 9.25 Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised where? In their hearts. It's always going to be a circumcision of the heart. Paul tells 
those in Romans chapter 2, the very same thing. This is, this is consistent, both old and new. Romans 2.25, For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So, if a man who is uncircumcised, a Gentile, keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you, you Jew, who have the written code and circumcision, but break the law. For no one, listen to this, Romans 2.28, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. It's always a matter of the heart. Now, does that mean that what I do in terms of my church attendance, and my giving, and my serving, and my pursuit of holiness is Utterly inconsequential? No, no. Because if you're circumcised in your heart, you'll want to do those things. You'll long to do those things. You'll long to be the true circumcision. You'll say, this is, this is the God-centered free grace that I've been looking for and that I want to live by. And then he calls them something else. Look at the middle part of verse 3. He says... We are the circumcision, and then this, who worship by the Spirit of God, or in the Spirit of God, or with the Spirit of God. You know what we are? We're Spirit-empowered worshipers. Not just, not just God-centered, God-loving, free-grace people. We're also Spirit-empowered worshipers. You know the word for worship here is latruo, and it also means service. Worship or service. It could be translated and is with either word in our New Testament, depending on the context. We're spirit-empowered worshipers. We live by the Spirit. We're not those who are by the letter saying, are you circumcised? If you're circumcised, you're in. And if you're circumcised, you're in the kingdom. And you're as a part of the covenant. And all of those mangy dogs out there who are the Gentiles. And Paul comes along and says, no, 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 no. The mangy dogs are the ones who think that circumcision is the one that's physical and outward, and I'm telling you, it's inward and it's spiritual. And here's how it is spiritual. The Spirit of God empowers us to worship Jesus Christ with God-centered free grace. That's why we come. That's why we sing these songs. That's why I get emotional when I hear... This gifted man sing to the glory of God. This wells up in my heart, this desire to have a Spirit-empowered worship. The Spirit-empowered service. God the Father has determined that there would be God-centered free grace alone in Jesus Christ. And the Holy Spirit has determined that if you're going to be a worshiper of God, if you're going to worship Him, the Spirit, you're going to do so by having an empowerment to worship and serve Him by grace alone. Through your life, through your intent, through your worship, through your service. Oh, I wish we had time to read about the Holy Spirit, who is the very one for whom, with whom, and by whom we are led. 
The Spirit leads us, and He leads us by the Word. And the Word causes us to worship the Holy Spirit because as a true Christian, you want to know what a true Christian is? He's a person who believes in God-centered free grace, and he's a person who believes that the Holy Spirit empowers him to worship Jesus Christ by grace and grace alone. That's, That's what it means. So you've got God the Father who centers us in free grace alone, and you've got the Holy Spirit who empowers us to worship by grace alone, and number three, latter part of verse three, he says, and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Do you see the Trinity? See the Trinity there? We're the circumcision because God has required God the Father, a circumcision of the heart that centers on free grace and free grace alone, no works that I could do to bring to God and say, look at my works, will you accept me now? No, it's by grace, and if you think that works accept you, grace is no longer grace. And so I want this free grace alone centeredness by God the Father, and I want the Holy Spirit to empower me to worship and serve as He directs and leads, and I want to glory in nothing else save Christ Jesus. And by the way, and glory in? You know what that word glory means? Boast. Boast. I'm not going to boast in anything except Jesus Christ. So you can't boast in your works. You, 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 you cannot claim any good works. We, we don't have any anyway. Because they're all like filthy rags. They, they're a stench in the nostrils of God. If we present them to Him and say, Look, look how good I am. Look how... How many times I've worshipped. Look how much money I've given. Oh, look how, how, how prayed up I am. There's, there's, nothing, there's nothing of that because you're trying to earn. You're trying to merit. You're trying to deserve. And so I don't boast in any work that I have. I don't boast in anything. It's like the Puritan said of old, the only thing I bring to salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. That's all that I bring. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. I'm boasting only in Christ Jesus. And these Judaizers, they were boasting in their circumcision. They were boasting in their covenant relationship to God. And they were boasting that they had the oracles of God. And they were boasting that they weren't Gentiles, they were Jews. They they were boasting they weren't like the dogs over there. You remember the guy in Luke 18, he was beating his breast and saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner, while the... The Jew over there who was saying, oh, I'm thankful that I'm not like other guys like this fellow. I pay tithes twice that I get. I'm good. In fact, if you knew my life, you would know how good and how righteous I really am. And next week, we're going to find out what Paul says about himself. He says, look, verse 4. I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh if I chose to flaunt it. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I far more. And then he gives this pedigree about himself. Look, if there was anybody who could present this this workable, makeable case to God about these good works, it would be me, Paul. He says, I count those things as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. So what do you have to do? Here's what you have to do. Here's the gospel. You have to unload all that stuff. All that stuff that you thought was in your credit column, it's debit. 
It condemns you. It damns you. It sends you straight to hell. What you have to do is you have to say, I don't have any good works. I can't do good things because all the things I think that I'm doing well are things that are shot through with the boasting of myself about my good works. I can only boast in Christ Jesus. That's the positive. Here's the negative. And I put no confidence in the flesh. None. None none whatsoever. No confidence at all. I see it as God sees it. And I relinquish it as that which otherwise would send me straight to an eternal Christless day. I don't. I, I, I say all these works I place on the trash heap. Dung. Scubalon. It means refuse. I just, I just throw it onto the heap where it belongs. And here's what I do. I boast only in the salvation provided alone in Jesus Christ. That's my glory. That's my boast. You know, he's just described what a Christian is. These are descriptions of a Christian. And I suspect that he might be saying when he says, I glory in Christ Jesus, I boast. He might be remembering something like Jeremiah 9. Do you remember it? Verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. I don't boast in anything other than the Lord. And you know who the Lord is according to Philippians 2, 5 to 11? 11? It is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's whose boast we give. That's why with the Corinthians, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, beginning in verse 26, it's not not the mighty, it's not the noble, it's not the brave, it's not the rich, it's not the beautiful. God has taken all of those things of the world and He's turned it on a dime. He's turned it on its head and He says, I'm actually going to confound the wise. I look at all the rich and all the beautiful and all the bold and all the fancy and I say, I'm going to pick instead their opposites. And guess what? It's us. It's you and me. That's what He he delights in choosing those who are the nobodies. We're the blessed nobodies. You say, well, I never. (laughs) You better oughta. You better oughta. You affirm God's free grace. Do you affirm and worship and serve in, with, and by the Holy Spirit? And do you glory in Christ Jesus? I mean, it goes from a solemn warning to a note of sweet salvation. Let's pray together. Father, We want to be those who are believing in God-centered free grace and Spirit-empowered worship and Christ-boasting confidence. Nothing else, no one else, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. May it be so and may You be our boast forever and ever. In Jesus' name, amen.